We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma At Semper Virgo Felix Teliporta Steve with Sense of Fidelity coming at you on the 28th of March 2020 under quarantine joining the rest of the world joining Charles in his lockdown in his house good evening Char oh, afternoon well your evening yeah good evening Charles how you doing thank you thank you well it's still daylight it's only five o'clock in the afternoon and it's five o'clock somewhere yeah it's five o'clock now I could I could if I weren't alone well I'm not alone you're here there you go but if, if I weren't alone I would crack open something and drink heavily. But unfortunately, I'm not a solitary drinker. It's a defect. I, I can do anything. I, I'm a, what you, a chameleon on that. I can drink by myself ah. with many. It's, it's, a, it's a trait. It's one of my virtues. <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I don't judge. I'm from California. I don't know how. Uh, it's 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 just not allowed to us to judge, you know. Uh, in fact, we're judged very severely if we judge, who so we don't judge. But who are you to judge? <laughs> who's anyone to judge? I don't know. No, no, I, I'm. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm savoring this time. No, not getting nearly enough done. I've got all sorts of writing assignments, both for school and professional, ahead of me. I keep sloughing off. I'm, I don't know why. I, uh, for no reason at all, I watched The Mask of the Red Death this afternoon with Vincent Price, 1964. I remember when it came out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. In the words of Slick Willie, I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you're, you're sort of... You're sort of in a strange dream world. I, I like the meme that's going around that says, uh, my home is like Vegas right now. <laughs> It's, uh, what is it, uh, it's okay to drink any time of the day. Uh, nobody knows what time it is, and we're all losing money. <laughs> so, anyway. Someone order a pizza while we're doing that. <laughs> yeah, you might as well. I mean, what the, it, it's, God bless the pizza delivery, man. But, uh, no, I, I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's all very peculiar. But peculiar or not, we do have a topic. Yes. Horror, science fiction, fantasy in general, and he's not talking about L.A. or New York. No, no. Not, well, you know, it's like when someone asks me once during, during a questions and answers at the end of a lecture, what I thought about the three days of darkness. I said, well, let me get this straight. The three days of darkness, uh, you're going to want to stay in your house. The door is locked. The, the drape's drawn. Not look outside, because outside there'll be all kinds of horrors. If someone shakes the door, you shouldn't open it. 
and probably you should hide under your bed and pray <laughs> for three days. I said, you know, we've been living like that in L.A. for most of my time. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I don't know it's going to be all that much of a difference. But no, I uh, well, the the uh, the three genres and mystery really is kind of a weird fourth. Uh, because, of course, mystery usually does not have to deal with the strange of the outre in one sense, but it does deal sometimes with the frontiers of human perception. Uh, and it requires just as much effort on the part of the author. Mm -hmm. You see, there are three different things that ought to be brought to mind. One is the history of the three genres. One is for want of a better word, their technical uh, production. Mm -hmm. And the third is their utility. Now, I know that they often get taught down a lot by uh, very devout Catholics, often for reasons that appear very solid to them. And I would be the last to dispute how they feel about their own reading. De gustibus non est disputandum is a Latin phrase that is often quoted it means in matters of taste, there should be no argument. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Catholics today tend to forget, you see. Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't. You know, if you like uh, meat or you don't, that's nice. But it's also not an article of the faith. Mm -hmm. So I may be a strict vegetarian, and you may be a, straight, a steak eater, or vice versa. Neither of us have the right to excommunicate ourselves or each other over this. In fact, by excommunicating each other, we might be excommunicating ourselves. I'm not going to try to follow that along. It, 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 sounded, it sounded deep, but I, I don't quite know where it's going, so we'll leave it. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, the, uh, there are a couple of things to be borne in mind. Firstly, the difference between science fiction, horror, and, and uh, fantasy. Years ago, I was on a panel trying to determine the canon of fantasy literature. And one of the other people was a fellow called Peter Beagle, whose great claim to fame is that he wrote a book called The Last Unicorn, which was turned to a TV cartoon and so forth. A very nice fellow, uh, he uh, mentioned that he had been raised in a socialist family and that his parents' politics were their religion. He, he admitted rather shamefacedly, had lost his parents' religion. Not a bad thing, really, if you think about it. But at any rate, uh, so the, he said during the course of this, uh, of this panel that the best definition he had heard as to the difference between science fiction and fantasy is that science fiction takes you to the very edge of what's possible, and fantasy pushes you over the edge. And then I, I couldn't help myself. I added, and horror is waiting for you at the bottom. <laughs> With arms wide open. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Come to me, my little man. <laughs> my precious. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather not, thanks. And of course, though, you, you have touched on a very important point, and that is, though, that these boundaries are, are far from um, perfect. There are certainly horrific elements in Tolkien. Uh, I think the the Balrog is pretty pretty nasty. You know, uh, Gandalf's fight with the Balrog. Anyway, but we'll get to that. So, in full disclosure, uh, I might get excommunicated from my own show. I never saw it, never read it. Just 
Well, well, then I can make stuff up about it, and you won't know. Thank you. That's great. You know, there's the part where the 7th Cavalry charge in during the Siege of Gondor. Uh, yeah, that's I, I remember that. And General Custer rescues the ring. Uh, really, Charles? Oh, yes. Is that this the is great. version? Well, let's just say I've got you set up for a long ride now. Thank you. I feel much better. No, but seriously. Um, before we even touch on the Lord of the Rings or anything like that, an important thing to bear in mind, and this is what gets people very confused, is that the boundary between those genres and mainstream literature only emerged with the Reformation. Prior to that time, things that we consider mainstream literature had fantastic Fantastic and horrific elements, no distinction. That's why in Shakespeare and Chaucer, uh, personality readings, if you like, as as grilling as any modern realist writer, juxtaposed with fairies and uh, and ghosts, and that is the way Western literature was. There are reasons for that. Uh, one of them being that uh, we consider folklore was taken very seriously at that time. It isn't any longer, of course, except by folklorists and fantasy writers. But that, the division between the genre writing and the mainstream comes at the Reformation. That's also when you see an end to the stories of King Arthur and things like that. Because the reformers had no use for them. And in Protestant countries such as our own, and England, and northern Germany, and elsewhere. This antipathy is, is still present in many, many different ways. And it seeps into the, uh, to the consciousness of Catholics who, are, who live in culturally Protestant countries. I think it was Walker Percy who made the, uh, made the point that a, uh, a Protestant living in New Orleans can culturally be much more Catholic than a Catholic living in Cleveland. Let the Catholic living in Cleveland say as many rosaries as he likes. He is still the product of a Protestant culture, and all of his perceptions are affected by that. So that's an important thing to bear in mind. Uh, looking at this stuff from a sensibility that's basically Protestant in background, we have to be kind of on the lookout for what we're doing and what we're saying and thinking. All right. Well, then what happened? Well, so things sat until uh, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, and in reaction to them and the so-called Age of Reason, which was so reasonable it murdered thousands, if not millions of people, not unlike our own time, where the brightest and smartest are the most bloody-handed I mean that in a nice way, of course. Yes. Um, in reaction, you had something called the Romantic Revolt or the Romantic Reaction or the Romantic Revival. The very fact that it has three very different uh, nouns to go along with that uh, adjective shows you what a difficult phenomenon to get a, hand on, a handle on romanticism really is. Nevertheless, uh, romanticism produced several things. 
one of them was an interest in things medieval and as a result in Catholicism in Protestant countries. But it also produced an interest in what was called at the time Gothic literature, which had begun to reemerge in Protestant countries in the 1770s, mid to late 18th century. Uh, with the influence of the Romantic movement, this stuff blossomed into what we call today fantasy. Now, who were some of the major writers that practiced this kind of stuff? Well, in uh, England, Sir Walter Scott, uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, in America, oddly enough, the three greatest American, first American novelists, and some of them were, uh, a couple of them were poets as well, Washington Irving, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edgar Allan Poe. And what did they do? They also produced fantastic literature because they were romantics. And like most romantics, consciously or unconsciously, they were trying to repair the break in culture that had occurred at the time of the Reformation. The problem, of course, in trying to do that without addressing the religious issue is that you address the symptoms and not the cause. But such is life. So out of that, you had the uh, you had then the uh, revival, if you want, the the occurrence of fantasy literature in Europe, in America. Uh, you had with the addition of all sorts of uh, machinery, new inventions, and so forth over the course of the nineteenth century. This was where science fiction developed from, uh, because people immediately began speculating. Well. You know, if, if just in the past 25 years that I've been alive, we've gotten the telegraph and the railroads, who knows what another 25, another 50, another 100 years will bring. So this is where science fiction came from, is the, the, uh, the sudden burst of scientific creativity in the middle to late 19th century. And, of course, horror... Um, that, I think, as much as anything else, was a, uh, an amplification of fantasy. I mean, you had people like George MacDonald who wrote fantasy that was hardly horrific. And there's a direct line from MacDonald to people like C.S. Lewis. But you also had ghost stories and things like that, people like M.R. James and uh, H.R. Delderfield and so on. Then uh, you have these two genres basically arise in their current form, more or less at the same time. And now that brings us to the present. Now, one of the arguments against this sort of literature is that it is in and of itself heavily sexualized. Well, on the surface, that's not a bad argument. And it's not completely untrue either by a long stretch. But what has to be borne in mind is that all of literature has been sexualized. Mm -hmm. Everything. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you were to eliminate whatever has been sexualized, you would have to go into your room. Yeah. Because there's, it's hit everything. Sports too, uh, everything. And I, I tell you, I had a, a friend of mine, or actually a friend of my dad, uh, Jim Bella, 
who was a, uh, a writer of uh, thrillers, you know, international espionage thrillers and all that. Well, one of the things you'll notice if you read that kind of thing, and I do because I take long plane trips. So when I take long plane trips, I go to the airport uh, bookstore and I buy cheap paperbacks. And that's what I read. My The high level of my reading standards on, on, the, earth, on the ground really, really drops pretty low in the skies. And one thing I've, no- I've noticed now is that there's always at least one sex scene in every bloody novel you pick up. Mm-hmm. So you've got to learn to zip past it. You'll find you zip past it. The, the, you know it's egregious because if you chopped it out with, a, with scissors, it wouldn't affect the plot one iota. Mm-hmm. If it did, that would be a different story, but it doesn't. So uh, back to Jim Bella. He had gotten... The, uh, he was writing a, uh, a uh, uh, book, a, a thriller, you know, a, a spy versus spy kind of thing. And he had just gotten to the point where uh, his hero was sitting in his room, in his hotel room, and the doorknob turns. So he's telling the story, and he says, it so happened I'd gotten that far, and the, and the phone rang. It was the publisher, and he says, we need 15% sex. And he goes, what? Yep. So he told him precisely what was wanted. Well, he says, if you read that book, the doorknob turns, the door opens, in comes this, this voluptuous blonde, and the next few pages are involved in the most ridiculous, pointless sex scene ever. Because he was really annoyed at having to do this. He was really, really put out. So he said, if, if you could bring yourself to read it, you'll say it doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, things don't work that way. But that was his way of protesting. And the publisher loved it. Which, which even though it was so stupid. And the blonde never reappears. She smiles, gets up, and leaves. She doesn't reappear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's totally gratuitous. Mm-hmm. And he did that on purpose. He set out to write the stupidest sex scene possible. And to, he succeeded to his own, you know, to his own estimation. But the publisher loved it. So he said that that shows you. And I said, well, I said, what was supposed to come in when the, when the door handle was turned? He says, oh, it was, was going to be an enemy agent. They were going to have a shootout. So, fine. They want a sex scene? They got a sex scene. Enjoy. Well, that was true in every bloody genre. So it's it's pretty pretty bad, pretty bad. And uh, I I will no more defend the oversexualization of heresy, uh, heresy of uh, heresy either of horror, fantasy, science fiction. I will no more defend the oversexualization of those genres than I will anywhere or anything else mm-hmm. in literature or in life. Not in advertising, not in movies, nowhere. Uh, and certainly I do believe, frankly, that one of the effects of this sexualization of everything, including advertising, uh, is that it's made people like dear old Uncle Ted McCarrick mm-hmm. more active than they would have been otherwise. If you see what I mean. You see, when is a society you're constantly saying, have sex, have sex, have sex, have sex, have sex. It's not just normal people who will hear and answer the call. 
All sorts of other strange folk will rise to the occasion. But at the end of the day, who's to blame? Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we can't assign blame. You know, that would be unkind. So I guess it's just all goodness. But at any rate, having said all of that, then the question is, so that's nice. What then is the utility of these genres? If we leave aside their, uh, their over-sexualization, well... Partly, it's the, the, uh, what's true of any good literature. And any good literature basically reflects the human condition as it is. And, that, and I know that's going to sound funny when I say this about fantasy, horror, and science fiction. But I'll get to that. The best literature reflects the human condition as it actually is. In its truth both what's good and what's bad. Now, unfortunately, mainline fiction has degenerated as much as anything else has. Uh, when Cardinal Newman, in his idea of a university, called for the, uh, the uh, use of literature in the training of young men, precisely to armor them against the world, he, of course, was not considering his literature the... Uh, semi-porn we put out today. Uh, It just isn't the case. But here's the thing. Even the worst uh, fantasy horror science fiction, if it's going to succeed, it requires more effort than mainstream fiction. Because for it to work, the author has to sustain your willing suspension of disbelief. And that takes a lot of work. Only a real craftsman can do it. Um, this will sound doubtless, uh, uh, doubtless unfavorable in many circles, but I think, despite my violent disagreements with the man's views, I think that one of the best writers living today is no less than our own Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, why do I say that? Well, partly because he captures America. I mean, he really captures it. If you look at his descriptions of towns, of the way people actually interact with each other and so on, mm-hmm. spot on. Uh, Salem's Lot, which is his classic vampire story, uh, has a priest in it who is very disillusioned by the aftermath of Vatican II. Truer stuff you will never read than his description of Father Callahan's spiritual issues. Uh, it's just, it's, it's very well done. He's a very fine writer. I don't know what he's like as a man, and as I say, I disagree with a lot of his uh, positions. But, as a writer, he was very good. Oddly enough, uh, another writer who is, I often think of him, although no one else brackets him, is Garrison Keillor. And no, you won't often hear, what's that? So I don't know, the name's not familiar. Prairie Home Companion is what he's best known for. Lake Wobegon. Okay. Which he translates as a Chippewa Indian term, meaning place where we stood in water up to our knees all day. Which, I have to admit, if you did that, you would be Wobegon, whether or not you were a Chippewa Indian. (laughs) I think if you were a Norwegian or a German and did that, you would probably be feeling rather Wobegon. So... (laughs) At any rate, uh, 
I mention this because there's a lot of uh, a lot of the fantastic in Keeler's writing. People don't catch it, but the difference between King and Keeler is one of degree, not of kind. A bit more horror and a bit less Americana. Keeler would be King. A bit less horror, a bit more Americana. King would be Keeler. And that that really incidentally comes uh, comes out in the film they made, A Prairie Home Companion, where the angel of death is an actual character. So I mention all this uh, because firstly and foremost, as I say, uh, writers of those genres to recoup have to be better at what they do, the mainstream writers, especially today. Because being a mainstream writer, basically it means pleasing the uh, literary establishment, which, you know, the, uh, uh, having said that, the question arises, well, what is the utility of this stuff as far as the faith is concerned? Well, there the answer is actually simpler than it appears. I said the true literature and the supplies of the three genres really has to illustrate the human condition. I will take Lord of the Rings as an example because it is the best of its type. Yes, it's certainly filled with fantastic elements, dwarves, elves, the Nazgul, the Dark Lord, etc. And yet, what is Lord of the Rings really at its heart? It is all those things. I mean, I don't want to detract from them. But at its base, the Lord of the Rings is a very realistic meditation on the interaction between grace and free will and how they actually play out in everyday life. And the fact that he has captured it so honestly and so truthfully is what gives the Lord of the Rings its great power. And that's something most of its fans even aren't aware of. But he shows his hand a few times uh, when uh, Frodo is complaining about how things are and so forth. And he says, uh, uh, oh, I wish that uh, I had never lived to see such a time. And Gandalf says, so say you, so say I. So says everyone who lives in such times. But that is not given to us to choose. What's given to us is what to do with the time we're given. Uh, when he's complaining that the thing came to him, Gandalf says, well, this may you may be assured. It was to, it was meant to go to Bilbo, and not by its creator. And so there you have a slight revelation of the hand of God in the uh, in the thing. Later on, in the uh, in the uh, what do you call it? The, this is a spoiler. I'm sorry. We haven't read it. I'm very. And for all of you out there who have not read it, I feel very bad for what I'm going to do. But bring it. <laughs> I I I don't really care. Actually, I'm not. I'm not nearly as paid as I'm pretending. But I, I feel the time. Need... Netflix probably has it. I want... Oh, I'm not supposed to have Netflix. I'm sorry. Uh, Amazon's my. <laughs> Is it raining in here? <laughs> you know, you could do something really crazy and read the books. I could. I just don't have it there. Ah, uh, well, I think you can get them online. You can? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Do you think? But the uh, the thing is that uh, the the uh, very end, the ring has to be destroyed by being tossed into what is actually a volcano. Mm -hmm. But the ring corrupts those who hold it. And so Frodo, who's carried the ring all the way to the volcano through all sorts of horrors to destroy it, he's conquered by it just at the last minute. He says, I do not choose to do what I was going to do. I will take the ring for myself. He puts it on, he vanishes, and just then the evil Gollum, whose life had been spared out of pity, but who was evil as evil could be, chops his finger off, grabs the ring for himself, and falls into the volcano. And he and the ring are destroyed. So it's Gollum who basically completes the quest, not Frodo. Frodo fails, although he doesn't die, but he fails. Gollum, for his own evil purposes, and not to his own salvation, saves the world. And you see, that's how life really is. God rides straight with crooked lines. We're all being used. Even, even the worst of us play a part in this great tapestry. That's the way life really is, and it's beautifully illustrated in Lord of the Rings. And there's one other great, uh, one other great moment there in the appendices when Gandalf the Wizard is explaining how he uh, happened to in the first in the, the Hobbit, which is the prequel. He explains how he got there and how he met up with the dwarves who were going to go kill this dragon and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, he explains that one night he ran into their leader, Thorin Oakenshield, at this inn in a place called Bree. Mm -hmm. And he heard what they were going to do, and his first thought was, well, they better get a hobbit to help them because, you know, these dwarves blundering around by themselves, it's, it, it's not going to end well. They're going to need a hobbit. So that was what led him to go into the Shire and, and his meeting up with Bilbo and Bilbo joining the band, etc., etc. So uh, he then goes on as to what would have happened had that not been done, had the dragon lived. He would have immediately have been ensnared by Sauron. It says, dragon fire in Lorium, and perhaps no queen in Gondor. And he gives this long laundry list of the terrible things that would have happened. But none of that came to pass because I happened to run into Thorin Oakenshield one night at the Inn at Bree. A chance meeting, as they say in Middle-earth. That's the life, the way life really is, you see. If you take your own life and think of every single one of the best things that happened in it, and the weird concatenation of circumstances that led to that happening, it shouldn't have. It's quite ridiculous. Not nonsense. There's no reason for you to have met your best friend or your wife. None at all. It doesn't make any sense if you think about it. Except it does, because there is a guiding hand in life to which we react freely. So this is the kind of truth that fantasy literature science fiction and horror are able to explore in a way that mainstream writers simply can't. And that is the real value for the Catholic of the three genres. Now there are a lot of others. Oh, did I mention they're fun? Yes, they're fun. They're enjoyable. 
I know for some people that by itself is proof they must be from the devil. But that speaks to the Calvinism at the bottom of our national mentality. Yeah. We're not allowed to yeah. laugh. It's a sin to laugh and have fun. No, of course it is. Why? If it weren't if it weren't such a sin, well then 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 why did St. Philip Derry use joke book? Oh wait a minute. <laughs> Never mind. What did uh, what did uh, Saint Teresa of Avila say? Oh Lord, spare me from sour saints. Yes. Well, she knew what she was talking about, and so did Saint Philip Neri. The um, you know the famous story. He had a uh, he had one of his lads who was a, uh, a great preacher. At his penance, he had him read a joke book from the pulpit. <laughs> he said, "But you know, it'll make me look like a, like a moron." Because yeah, sure will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mention this because there is, in all of this stuff, we, we have to bear in mind, we have inherited from the dear Calvinist founders of our culture certain basic prejudices which we never examine. But we really should. Because to the degree that we're Calvinist, to that degree we're not Catholic. And we should be try. We should try to be as Catholic as we possibly can be. I think. I remember, Maybe I'm wrong. I remember uh, first time I heard that was yours. Was it 15, 20 years ago? You did with Bill, and you mentioned uh, it's so good it's sinful. Yeah, that 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 is very true. When I when I was a boy, they had these. I think it was Stouffer's mm -hmm. had these ads. So delicious, it's almost sinful. And I asked my father, because, you know, my grasp on these things, I'm French-Canadian, you know, and I could see where if you put out a cake that tasted like garbage, now that would be sinful. But how could it taste good be sinful? I, I couldn't wrap my little mind around that. And I asked Dad what that meant. And he said, well, basically, son, what it means is that uh, the, uh, the people for whom this appeals are uh, all, all Puritans, they're all crazy. And that made it very simple for me, and I've, and I've accepted it, you know. It's, it's part of the, the inner darkness of the American. Mm -hmm. And we do have one, uh, I'm absolutely convinced. King described it, describes it very well, Hawthorne did, Lovecraft. Uh, we have in the American soul, and I, I think it comes from the Puritan background, we have a sort of odd darkness, uh, and it—it's funny because we always like a happy ending, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, very often, you'll find Americans believe European literature is very depressing because so often it doesn't have a happy ending, <clears throat> and we always have to have that happy ending. But that said, there is nevertheless a darkness to us that, uh, well, you know, you—you'll you, see it in Hawthorne. You'll see it in Faulkner, in what they call Southern Gothic. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, she said, and I, I thought this was terribly funny, and I think it's very true. She said that uh, the South is not Christ-loving, it's Christ-haunted. But even at that, he still gets more attention paid to him from the South and the North. <laughs> The, the the Yankees 
uh, you know, the the Yankees may may uh, be be Puritans, but they're not interested in Christ at all. <laughs> these I mean, these are all over over uh, simplifications, but they're not entirely not entirely wrong. So, having said all of that, um, the uh, I, I I want to hasten to add that just because something is fantasy or science fiction or horror doesn't mean it's good. Very true, too. <laughs> uh, but there are, it is amazing how many Catholic writers have done or are doing very good work in it. Mm-hmm. Of living writers, I think of people like Tim Powers, uh, Sandra Mizell, the recently deceased R.A. Lafferty, not recently, a few years ago, Jerry Pornell, uh, Anthony Boucher. He, uh, Boucher, and this is another good example of how the genres can be used. Boucher wrote a fascinating short story called The Search for Saint Quinn. Mm-hmm. Set in a future time when we've got space travel and all that kind of thing. But the church is illegal. And word has come to the Pope, who's in some exiled place, not in Rome, of a supposed incorrupt body of a uh, saint, a very, you know, person of the locals think was a saint. Uh, and he dispatches a priest to go find the thing and see what, this, what the truth is. Well, here the priest has all sorts of unpleasant adventures, and he has with him what is called a robas, R-O-B-A-S-S. And it's basically a, uh, a sort of moving machine, a robot, but it's got a computer and it's very intelligent, you see. But it plays the part really of Satan because it's constantly trying to get him to doubt. You know, your religion makes no sense. It's totally illogical, blah, 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 blah. Well, they have various misadventures and finally they get to the cave where Satan quit. And he asked the robot, you know, well, don't you folks have any belief? And he says, well, we speak of there being a perfect robot who is the ultimate thinking machine. But of course, you know, such a creature could never exist. Uh, we are, after all, ultimately programmed by you people. And for, uh, you know, for one of us to come to to independent thought would be impossible. But is that, is this, so that's, that's the closest we have to one of your myths. So they go on, and finally they find the body. And there it is, incorrupt, the body of a man lying there. And so the, so the fellow gets on his knees and he starts praying. But the robot makes a funny noise that goes over, lifts up one of its legs, and brings it down very hard on the hand of the, uh, of the, the body. And underneath the apparent skin, there's, it's metal. It's, it's an android. And so the robot starts laughing. He says, ha, so much for your miracle. This isn't incorrupt. This thing was an android. It, it's, and then, uh, you know, he's brought down from it, and then it stops, and he thinks, says, wait a minute, an android. This is the creature of your legend. This is the ultimate thinking machine. And it came to the conclusion that the Catholic faith was true. And as the, uh, I forget exactly how it ends, but it says something like, and the robots was silent. 
You see, you can deal with things, you can play with ideas in a way that you can't in mainstream writing. Similarly, uh, there was another very, very tragic writer, Walter Miller, but he wrote one book that was sublime called A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is sort of science fiction, sort of fantasy, sort of fantasy in the sense that the wandering Jew plays a role in it. You don't see him in too many mainstream novels, I'll tell you. But it's it's set in the future after an, an atomic war. And the church has survived. So it's divided into three parts. The first, it's roughly the Dark Ages. The second, mankind is advanced, and it's roughly the Tudor era and the invention of electricity. And then the third, Mankind is a little bit further on than where we are now. And he manages to destroy himself again. And the whole the whole point of it is not just now the Catholic faith comes out as true in the whole course of it. But it's that you the point of the book is that human nature never changes. Mm-hmm. We're always in need of salvation, and if we if we don't grasp for it, then we just fall back into the same old stupid patterns and repeat the same idiotic horrors. So you see, uh, this stuff is very, very useful on one level. It's entertaining on another. And it answers a third issue. Now, this is a very important question, I think, especially if you're raising children. The worst thing you can do with kids is to say no and not give them some alternative. There's nothing worse than that. Because if you do, they will identify you and what you believe purely with an absence, Mm -hmm. with nothing positive. And, you know, I I mean, I remember my dad always used to say Catholicism is the thinking man's religion. Mm -hmm. And then he proceeded to demonstrate it. That's important. Mm -hmm. It's, It's important that they see that... Catholicism is everything. It has everything within it. The best of literature, the best of the arts, the best of everything. Mm-hmm. And that everything outside it is, well, in the immortal words of Belloc, slightly suburban. <laughs> It'll also take you to hell, but beyond that, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 not just, it's not just satanic. It's in such poor taste. I mean, it's one thing to go to hell, but go to hell looking like a rube? Really? Is that the best you've got to offer? Come on. But uh, so, but that, that, as I say, uh, you know, it's, a, a poem comes to mind. Again, sort of a fantastic poem. I forget the author of it. Once in, once in, with, once in pious feeling or something like that, it's called. This fellow is praying. And he says, oh, Lord, I'm terrible, I'm awful. I'm the worst that was uh, ever been. I, I'm the greatest sinner ever born. Then up and spoke my guardian angel and tapped me from behind. Vanity, my little man, you're nothing of the kind. <laughs> well, see, this is the freedom that the three genres give you that uh, mainstream literature doesn't have. Well, that having been said, I'm certainly as 
to repeat what I said earlier, I'm not going to endorse everything that goes under the names of science fiction, horror, or fantasy. Like anything else in life, it's a case-by-case thing. Uh, leaving Tolkien alone for the moment, uh, because he's always brought out, and with good reason. Uh, Charles Williams's fantastic novels were tremendous for the same reason. C.S. Lewis, uh, of all of his novels, and you know, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, I love the Space Trilogy, and so on and so forth. But the third volume of the Space Trilogy is my favorite. It's called That Hideous Strength. And it stands alone. It's the third part of a trilogy, but it does stand alone. And I, I often give it to godchildren when they turn 18. And I say, this is how the grown-up world really works. You can find it online. I just thought I'd mention it. You can read it online. I got a lot of reading from this list, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm here to help. But, you know, I, I, I just do what I can for others. You know, the, the old joke, she lives for others. You can tell the others by their hunted look. <laughs> We've all known people like that. The trick is not to be one. But uh, honestly, though, uh, so I, I, I think I understand and appreciate all of the fear and all that that people have. Uh, you remember Dr. Laura Schlesinger? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Laura had a radio show before she was chased off. And she was funny as all get out. I mean, her callers would always call with problems, of course. You know, they always start out, Dr. Laura, I've got a problem. Well, why else would you be calling? You know, Dr. Laura, I've got a really good brownie recipe I'd like to share with you. <laughs> no, that doesn't, that's not how it works. But at any rate, when, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Harry Potter came out. Uh, the uh, this woman calls and says, you know, isn't it terrible? It's luring children to Satanism and so on and so forth. Well, the thing with Dr. Laura is that when you said something and she didn't want to, you know, she was kind of sharp, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. But you could tell she was holding back. She could be a lot sharper if she wanted to be. And the way you knew was that there'd be this pause where she's gathering her breath so she doesn't say something really nasty. It didn't mean she wasn't going to say something nasty. Just meant... She's not going to really tell you what she thinks. So she's going on about how terrible Harry Potter is and all that. And Dr. Laura takes a deep breath and says, oh, darling, let me tell you something. I find it very unlikely that Harry Potter is going to lead your son to start a witch's coven on the street. And if I were you, I would put all that wonderful energy you've got into fighting some real evil like, oh, I don't know, the abortion bill in your neighborhood. Something like that. What do you say? And, of course, the, the response was not entirely happy. Well, the, uh, the, I mention this because when people have asked me about specific books like Harry Potter, what I tell them is, read it. You are the best judge, and that is if it's important to you. Of your, of your child's development. If your kid is firmly rooted in the faith and you've been doing, doing your job, things will be fine. If not, anything will make them go off the end. Anything at all. Mm -hmm. Even going to Mass can ruin them. 
if they've been badly uh, trained and prepared. So what you should do is pick up any book your kid is interested in, read it yourself, and decide whether or not you want them to read it. That's what you do. That's what my dad did. And inevitably, someone will say, oh, that takes a lot of time. Stop. What? Takes time from what? Watching the ball game. Oh, that's so sad. I feel so bad for you. The truth of the matter is, is that if you're a father or a mother, your child is supposed to be the most important thing in the world. It's upbringing. There is nothing more important in your life than seeing what your kid is into. And if that's just too much trouble for you, then probably you shouldn't have had kids because you're not really the kind of person who, you know, I was good at that kind of thing. A, a 14. Don't be, don't be a selfish uh, center. I'm sorry? Not, so you're saying to be a parent and not be uh, self-centered and uh, uh, selfish? Well, um, I mean, I, I that might have a bit to do with it. It's a good way to make sure if you are self-centered and selfish, I don't care what you believe. It's a good way to make sure your kids want Yeah. If you want them... If you want your kids to have your beliefs in a word, you've got to be their hero. That doesn't mean you're always nice. It doesn't mean you're their friend all the time. It does mean you're a straight shooter. You don't BS them. And they know you love them. But that comes through care. Even if they'd rather you didn't. Oh, Dad, why is it you've got to read every bloody thing I read? Well, if I weren't your father, I wouldn't give a damn. Now, that's something that the kid probably will not appreciate when he's 15. <laughs> when he's 25, he will. <laughs> well, not if you're still doing it when he's 25. And at that point, ladies and gentlemen, uh, hey, the, 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 there comes a time to let go, really. <laughs> But, Dad, it's just the August Reader's Digest, and I'm 33. I don't care. Let me see that thing first. <laughs> well. Uh, off topic, I know, but a buddy of mine told me this was about a year ago, talking about the uh, Obamacare bill. He goes, John Don of Austria took on the took on the Battle of Lepanto at age 25, and today we're still on our parents' health insurance at 25. <laughs> Well, see, times have changed. <laughs> and see, this, this, this great plague of ours, you know, I'm worried about all those little school children in Harvard and Princeton and places like that. Surely this thing is triggering them. Oh. And all the safe spaces are closed. They don't have any kook up the street, Belmont Abbey. They had little, I was told they have, is in their, is in the website, they have little kittens or bunnies or something like that that they could pet. Oh. Well, that's sweet. Now, what are the what, what are the little what are the little darlings going to do now? <laughs> there should be federal funding for safe spaces and petting zoos for college age children who are very very upset by everything that's going on. You know, I mean, it's just amazing to me. But at any rate, before I I go completely off the deep end, which is easy easy for me to do, it doesn't take any effort. But that's the thing. If your kid is interested in a book, now, granted, if it's a 17-volume series, maybe you just want to read one. But uh, read it. 
read at least volume one and see what you think. And if you don't want the kid to read it, don't let him read it. But if you think it's enjoyable, entertaining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, have at it. But I don't like to read. So basically, you're going to let the kid know that he's smarter than you are. That's really bright. That's, oh yeah, that's good. That's, yeah, that's... It may even be true, ladies and gentlemen, that your children are smarter than you are. But never let them know it. And on the other hand, never feel threatened by it. Be proud. If you know your kid's smarter than you are, don't let them know it, but don't try to try to squelch it. Encourage him. You know, my, again, I quote my dad. He always said that uh, smarter children are much harder to raise than dumb ones. The dumb ones are easy. You know, you just say, okay, kid, look, I'm going to do this. Would you go stare at the wall for the next three and a half hours? Okay, Dad. You know, and you're fine. The problem is when he grows up, <laughs> and he'll still, you know, he's, he's still going to be dumb as a, dumb as a uh, thick as a brick. But, <laughs> yeah, it's very sad. But you're a smart kid. Hard as Hades to raise. But once you've done it, if you've done your job properly, that make you proud. And that that's the thing. But in the meantime, you've got to make them proud. You know? Uh, and that that requires a lot out of you. Uh, being a, being a, a father or a mother is a heroic position. Don't let anyone fool you on that. And it requires heroism. Unfortunately, as several generations have tried to slide through it, thinking all they need to do is feed the kids and give them kind of a basic uh, protection against badness, and that's enough. Well, no, it's not enough. It never was, and it's certainly not now. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, again, I've only got the experience of my own folks, but uh, I remember that... Uh, my friends, my brother's friends would always come to them, one or the other, for uh, advice and so forth, which, uh, you know, can get embarrassing sometimes. But years later, I realized it was because that sort of thing that they should have been able to get at home simply wasn't available. And that, you know, that was just the way it was. And it's worse now. That's for darn sure. Uh, so... To be on the topic, what would be Charles's top five list? For each oh, well, wait a minute. First, you, you said to be on the on topic, which is always upsetting right there. <laughs> but, I mean, talk, talk about, I feel like I just had an ad smacked across my face. <laughs> be on topic. I mean, what next? I, I, my bad. <laughs> yeah, why, why, why don't you just ask me to, to, I don't know, balance the federal budget? Fine. I don't care. All right. We'll do this. Five. But you know what, smart guy? We're going to do five of each of the three genres. Yeah, uh-huh. That's right. And we are going to start with fantasy. You ready? <laughs> All right. Trying, I was trying to pull up Dave Letterman's top ten list there, but it was not working. <laughs> uh, don't fret. Here are my top 15. Five for each genre. So, one. Lord of the, in fantasy, Lord of the Rings. Two, Chronicles of Narnia. Three, 
Dow gets hard because those two are obvious. I would say, uh, well, you know, it's hard to say whether this would be horror or uh, or fantasy. Well, all right, I'll call it fantasy. Uh, Charles Williams's War in Heaven. Okay. Uh, four would be Arthur Mackin's The Great Return. And five... See, I don't know that I could call it science fiction because it could be. It, it's one of the. Well, never mind. A, a category for Leibowitz, Walter Miller. Those five. All right, that's fantasy. Okay, science fiction, or if you prefer, Skiffy. Uh, Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, a princess of Mars. Uh, Anthony Boucher's The Search for Santa Quinn. Uh, oh, why not? E.E. Uh, e. Smith's uh, Le- uh, Lensman series. I forget what the first one was called. I mean, you're talking about space opera. It's <laughs> Space opera, absolutely. Oh, uh, Paul Anderson. Uh, gosh. I'm going to trade. Walter Miller is going in here, so I can give you a Paul Anderson, back to fantasy. Okay. Paul Anderson's A, uh, a Midsummer's Tempest. All right, now we're done with them. It's time to move on. we got five sci-fi, five fantasy. Now we move on to horror. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we've got uh, uh, Arthur Mackin, the uh, the great god Pad. We've got H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, actually, I, I have to take two of his: the Shadow of Rinsmith and the Dunwich Horror. Hmm. Uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot without a doubt. And lastly, but not leastly, uh, Tim Powers, The Strain of Her Regard. Okay. So, there. But you know, I could actually name a lot of others. I'm sure, I'm sure. Because, uh, you know, when you had to do a top five list like that, the first thing comes to what you what you have to leave out. I mean, uh, I take uh, Madeline Lengel's uh, uh, series, uh, starting with, uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name. This is really annoying. They did a terrible movie of it two years ago. It was just awful. A Wrinkle in Time. Yes. Uh, and the the funny thing about that movie, I was asked to review it by Neil uh, uh, Neil Hudson for his uh, for his site. I did, but they I knew Madeline Lengel slightly. In fact, uh, not that I'm boasting, but she was the one who uh, proposed uh, me for the Writers Guild or the Authors Guild, rather. But Madeline Lengel wrote a series, several series of books uh, that crossed over genres, science fiction, horror, and fantasy. Uh, the one regarding the Murrays starts with A Wrinkle in Time. I read the book when I was a kid, really enjoyed it. Uh, 
And then about 2008 or nine, they came out with a television, a Disney put on a television uh, version of it. Now, Madeline was still alive. The television, I saw the television thing when it came out. It was okay. But Madeline was asked about it afterwards. She said, well, I expected it to be lousy, and it was. <laughs> so two years ago, I see this new version. It was so bad. So horrible. I mean, it, what a bloody travesty. As soon as I was done, I ran home to the internet and I watched the TV movie version. And it was so much better than I remembered because of the horror that I had just seen. It was so good in comparison. And I thought to myself, you know, it's a good thing Madeline didn't live to see this one because she would have exploded. It was it was horrible. But there are there are quite a quite a number of them. Uh you, you know T.H. White. He wrote The Once and Future King. Mm-hmm. Uh, a thing of which the, the first was The Sword and the Stone, which Disney turned into a, a cartoon, which was one of the very earliest movies I ever went to see with my dad, was The Sword and the Stone when it came out in 63. I still remember it. But I've seen it since, but what stuck in my mind was the opening sequence with the book, the pages. Anyway, he wrote another bit of fantasy, which... Uh, I really loved Mistress Masham's Repose, which is set in a in a ruinous mansion in the north of England, and it it carries not exactly a dark secret, but certainly a secret. And the secret is that you, you remember uh, Gulliver's Travels, Lilliput, the little people. Uh-huh. A bunch of them had been brought to Mistress Masham's Repose to the to this uh, to this mansion of Malplaquet, as it's called. Uh, 200 years before, and they continued to live there, building a, a, a civilization. So the heiress to the property discovers these people. They're all about yay big. I mean, it's 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 very whimsical. It's very funny. Uh, but it it you know, it, there's a lot of that kind of stuff out there. A lot of really enjoyable work like that. And why shouldn't there be? Well, that's right. I forgot. It's always got to be dark and terrible. No laughing. Zero fun, sir. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I've got a lewd, a lewd gesture I would love to make in response, but <laughs> I'm not going to do that because I'm a very nice person, basically. It's only when you get to know me you realize how awful. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that, that didn't come out the way I intended. Anyway, honestly, though, uh, these things are really, really enjoyable. You know, kids' literature, especially the really good kids' literature, has stuff in it for adults, mm-hmm. even though it's fantastic and all. I don't mean the cat in the hat. I, I know some people go back to it and learn, get new stuff out of it. I'm, I'm sure that's true. But I'll give you an example uh, of something that I've, I've had a uh, recently since I've come to live in Europe. I've had kind of an interesting encounter with. Uh, one of the books I read when I was a kid, because you know how kids are with a series of books. Mm-hmm. Well, I was the same way. Dad, my dad would very manfully read at least one of each, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure that it was, and some of them he really enjoyed, I have to say. 
Uh, others, you know, I, I think he humored me. But, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like with modern parents, I guess. Uh, Daddy, you want to watch my, the, my Little Pony with me? Yeah, sure. <laughs> you bet. That'd be great. But, you know, the, a, good, a, good, uh, a good father sacrifices for, for his children. Anyway, so there was a particular series of books set in a house in the Fed country of England. The Fed country is sort of swampy by the River Ouse. There's a name for you, O-U-S-E, Ouse, which is near Cambridge. And it's uh, the Greendo books, the name, of the, the name of the house in these series, G-R-E-E-N. K-N-O-W-E, Greendo, who written a series written by a lady called Lucy Boston, Lucy Maria Boston. All right. Well, I read those things when I was a kid, and I loved them. Mm-hmm. I didn't know until about five years ago that the BBC in the 80s had made a, uh, a version of them, but not of all, the first book, The Children of Greendo, which is a ghost story. The funny thing about the Greendo books is that they're never alike. They've got some of the same characters and all that, and the old lady that lives in the house is always the same, but they're always rather different from each other. And the first one is a flat-out ghost story of a benevolent kind, although there is a bit of evil as well that has to be faced and fought and defeated. But the BBC, back in the 80s, came out with a television version, which I just saw first the first time about four years ago, five years ago, called The Children of Green Dome really well done and you can see it yourself there's one scene in the book where the boy who's the hero and his great grandmother who's the old lady that uh, that owns the house uh, are at Christmas uh, service, midnight mass as they call it, but it's Anglican in the parish church but it goes back and forth between the present and the 16th century or sorry, the 17th century the 1600s when the ghosts of the house lived. The, go- the ghosts are friendly. They're not the evil problem. But uh, it goes back and forth in time between this midnight mass and one of the 17th century. Huh. And I thought to myself, how could they possibly capture that on television? They did a really good job. Huh. It was amazing. I, I, was, I was quite astonished. Well, I bring all this up because... Uh, Lucy Boston based the books on her house, which, like Greenow, uh, is one of the oldest continuously inhabited houses in Britain. Hmm. It goes back to Norman times. Unlike Greenow, it has not had the same family all that time. It's gone through many, 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 many different owners, including her. But she didn't inherit it. She bought it. Hmm. Uh, the thing was, she fell in love with the place. And everything in the books has a real-life equivalent. Every room is just the way it is in the books. And I finally got the chance to visit the place. Well, it's her daughter-in-law runs it now. This is Diana Boston. Mm-hmm. And the first time I went there, the feeling was so strange because I, I knew where everything was. <laughs> it was like uh, it was like going to some old great uncle's house uh. 50 years later and finding everything exactly the same. And I mean, it, it, it was it was uh, it was absolutely astonishing. And the the current Mrs. Boston, of course, is sort of the keeper of her uh, of her mother-in-law's flame. 
so they've got the books for sale, the gift shop, and all that kind of stuff. And also other books by her and all this. But it, it's been a... I, I just mentioned this simply because, A, I really enjoyed the books. They're very good. But also this sort of weird addendum all these years later. It it, uh, it was great. And the, the funny thing about it, too, uh, the second time I was there, I told Mrs. Boston, I said, you know, it, it, it's just astonishing to me. It's like going to an old relative's house. And she said, well, you know, it's funny. My mother-in-law uh, used to have uh, musical evenings during the war for the uh, American and British flyers that are my RAF base. Because, you know, they were constantly flying over to Germany and bombing. So two or three nights of the week, they'd all crowd into her big living room and listen to records. That was it. You know, they give out sandwiches and so on. But that was her, her way of trying to help with the war effort. So it, it so happened that about 10 years ago, the current Mrs. Boston was walking through the gardens. And there's this old man just walking through the gardens. And she asked him who he was, you know, and, and he said, well, I was an airman here during the war, an American. He says, you know, these gardens haven't changed at all. They're exactly the way they were back then. And so Mrs. Boston laughed and said, well, come have a look at the house. Of course, it hasn't changed either. Everything is exactly the way the old guy remembered it. Was, this is amazing. How can this be? He says, well, my mother-in-law didn't like to change anything, and I don't either. <laughs> Easy enough. <laughs> So, but it, uh, you'll be happy to know that in the, in the Great Plague, uh, she told me, I, I uh, talked to her a couple nights ago, and uh, she said that she's really grateful for this time. She's holed up in the house, and now she can do, get to all sorts of projects she had that, because of tourists and so forth, she couldn't, uh, she'd been putting them on hold. But now she's really able to get into it. But I, uh, no, anyway, the thing is that, uh, Kids in particular have a love of fantasy and so on. But bear in mind what I said at the very beginning about this division having come about as a result of the Reformation. You want to stimulate your kids' imagination. You really do. Uh, one of the things that uh, my parents got me when I was little that I recommended highly was a book by a fellow called Charles Bullfinch. It's called Bullfinch's Mythology. And it's got the Greek myths, Norse myths, uh, King Arthur, Charlemagne. It's, it's great. This is a great way to start out. You know, you want to fire the kids' imaginations. You don't want to repress them. Because remember, you are asking them to use their imagination when you pull out the catechism. Mm -hmm. You are asking them to look at what appears to be a piece of bread and a admittedly gaudy cup full of wine. I believe that that's the God that made heaven and earth and keeps all things in being. You don't think that requires the exercise of the imagination? It sure does. The imagination, like the reason, like every other faculty we have, have to be dragooned into the service of the faith. And you can only do that if you develop them and use them. Mm -hmm. So easier to do meditations that way we can picture things in your mind it's exactly oh no 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 you, you must do that because that's evil the hindus <laughs> meditate so do the buddhists so no you must meditate 
I mean, I, I can play that game too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, you, you really, you mustn't do anything. I mean, I, I, can, I can recommend to you books, uh, what is it, Catholicism, Babylon, Mystery, Religion, Revealed, which shows you how we descend directly from paganism without real Bible Christians. Yeah. Okay. Okay, sure. The Bible itself, I mean, you want to talk about uh, fantasy literature and horror, not science fiction necessarily, although some people see that see it in Ezekiel's uh, wheels. But, uh, I mean, think of the story of Saul and the Witch of Endor. That's... That's a pretty horrific thing. Uh, just as an exercise, uh, the next time you're free, go on to Google, put in Saul and the, Saul and the Witch of Endor, mm-hmm. or just Witch of Endor, mm-hmm. and go to uh, images. Mm-hmm. So what you come up with? It's pretty rough stuff. So we're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we can't know about that. But, well, there were witches in Saul's day, there are witches now. It's part of life. So much of what we consider a fantasy may not be. And so much of what we consider real is definitely false. I uh, I remember, uh, speaking of fantasy, I remember the second volume of Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, the uh, Aslan's victorious army of strange creatures goes by a schoolhouse where they're being taught history. And it says the, I forget the exact quote, but it's of the effect of, it was uh, the history they were taught was duller than the dullest thing you've ever read and not nearly as true as the wildest fantasy. <laughs> so it was dull and false, you know, which unfortunately there's a lot of the world like that. But having said all of that, uh, you got any questions for me? Let's see. Anybody, uh, anybody listening got any questions? I haven't been keeping up, really. I've been studying. Are we live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured, what the heck. Uh, what do you think about the Aragon series? The Aragon series? Yeah, Aragon. E- uh, e- what is it? Aragon? E-R-A-G-O-N? Aragon series? Oh, you know, I've never read it. All I, all I know, I saw a little piece of the film that was made from it. And I know it's got to do about it got to do with dragons. That's about it. I don't know anything about it, so I can't comment. So far that's pretty much all the questions that was in there. <laughs> what about Shakespeare? Well, I'm all for it. Why? That's that was the only other question is what was the book called? And someone said, What about Shakespeare? Oh okay, well uh the one of the fantastic elements in Shakespeare. Uh, we're not we're not up to the questions right now. I guess I, I guess no one no one had any questions. But uh, your books, you got a few. I do. I have new books. I've got one. It's coming out in August. From a, uh, you probably don't know them. Tab Publishing. Heard of them. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, it's on uh, Blessed Emperor Carl, uh-huh. and I'm I'm trying to push myself to get on a book on plague saints for uh, Tab uh, Tab books. Maybe you know them. I said. <laughs> Maybe just a smidgen. Yeah, well. <laughs> Talked to John the other day. He said he, he, he told me to tell you hi. Yeah, yeah, John Morehouse. He's yes. a great guy. Yes. You know, uh, when he was running his own uh, his own uh, uh, company, 
It was called House on the Moor, which I, I thought was pretty good. I had, uh, doesn't that conjure up a picture for you, speaking of fantasy? The House on the Moor. <laughs> I want to I buy that one this weekend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you've, got a, you've got a lot of stuff. I, uh, I, there's a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, as far as Shakespeare goes, well, The Witches and Macbeth, uh, Hamlet's Father's Ghost, uh, the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, the uh, the the dead witch and her weird son, the Tempest, and of course the the I don't know what you would call Ariel the Tempest, uh, but yeah, you see it all through uh, Caesar's Ghost in uh, Julius Caesar. You know it, it uh, it's all through it. Oh, and this this is not entirely apropos, but it's not entirely false either. I want you to know that all of the comic books of Classics Illustrated are online. Hey, that's strange. I can believe it. Now, that's worth knowing because you could do what people, what us kids did, which is, let's say you, you don't really want to read Silas Martyr while you're stuck where you are. You can read the comic book version. And I can tell you from experience that the Classics Illustrated comic book versions of these things are really great introductions to the things themselves. Hmm. And they're very well, very well illustrated. Some of the pictures, I promise, will stay in your mind forever. Hmm. They have in mind. I, uh, I revisited a few of the old ones I liked the best, you know. Seeing those old pictures, oh, I was eight years old again. It was wonderful. <laughs> I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this is right now is a period when retreating into nostalgia is completely understandable. No, all the stuff that's been opened up, like you said, the last time, you, the archives and the, the publishing companies and the the tours, the online virtual tours, it's it's been. Woo. Yeah, no more need to leave your house. <laughs> don't need to shower, folks. <laughs> well, yeah, showering is a good idea. The. Uh, you know, a good a good discipline is get up and get dressed every day. <laughs> Believe me, if if I'm I'm glad that I have a sufficient number of people, to, you know, that I'm dealing with on, on this on this medium, because if I didn't, the temptation to sit around in my bathroom all day would be really overwhelming. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I saw a meme of uh, Thor when uh, the of Avengers when he's the first couple of ones when he's just Jack Diesel and then the the shows after 15 days of uh, quarantine and he's the fat blob that he's in the last of the <laughs> Yeah, it's so it, it doesn't take much. I mean, and the other thing is, are, are we going to be able to uh, readjust to the rat race? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, the other day I was talking to somebody about it saying I was walking down the hallway and somebody went around me like I was, you know, walking around with the bell going, I'm clean. Yeah. <laughs> you got the plague. <laughs> but when, the, when this thing is done, are, you, are we going to be able to face going back to our offices again? Yeah. Saying hi to people. Le- leaving, our, leaving our loved ones at the door. <laughs> Although, to be, to be honest with you, there, there was a very funny, uh, funny thing I saw. You got this guy and says, uh, you hear an off, off-screen uh, narrator say, as a result of the coronavirus, you'll have to go into quarantine. 
Well, here are your choices. A, you could go into quarantine with your wife and child. Or B, he goes, B. Yeah, B. B. <laughs> B could be anything. He doesn't care. <laughs> so far, that's been funny, but zero women, women uh, wives right now. <laughs> yeah, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't care for that one. I, I don't know why. Have you have you seen the uh, the the one? Uh, it's not about the nail. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's sticking right out of their head. Yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> yes, you see, I've I've been doing. Yeah, I've been putting this time to good use. I have been writing that much as I should. Instead, I've been seeing this garbage. But uh, you know, uh, Key and Peel, the magical Negro. There's what you should see. Trying to read because I have still no comment, no questions. All right, well, well, Charles. your your time is coming, God, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, I I would have thought somebody would have made some nasty comment about my uh, my uh, uh, child rearing tips, but you know what are you gonna do? Give it give it fifteen minutes after we're done. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. All right, send all hate well, mail this... to Charles. Uh, it's the email just be provided down below. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I, I, uh, I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this, this is a strange time. But you know what? It's always strange times. Uh, my, uh, my dad lived through World War II and the Depression. My grandfather through uh, uh, World War One to the Great Pandemic and World War II and the Depression. Uh, I think part of the problem right now is that younger people, if you're much younger than I am, you probably haven't really encountered people who went through much worse than this. Uh, but I grew up on stories of, I mean, horrible tales of this kind of thing. And, you know, now it's our turn. So and when, when people ask, well, do you think it's a real thing? Or is it the New World Order? Or is it this? Or is it that? On a, on a certain level, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter. What matters is how you deal with it, how you experience it. Once it comes, if it came from a Chinese military factory or it's a plot by our masters to keep us all indoors or it's exactly as offered up on screen, how would that change anything? How would that actually make a difference? Well, uh, uh, you'd what? Well, I'd be really annoyed. Well, you're really annoyed now. So, yeah, but I, you, you, you'd what? You would what? Dive bomb Wuhan's military uh, military uh, warfare base? Is that what you would do? Oh, interesting. Interesting. You see, one of the reasons we particularly hate these sorts of times is that they remind us, despite what we're constantly told, that our views and opinions don't really matter much. They really don't. I mean. I'm not against people having them. If I were, I couldn't have any myself. And I have a lot of them. But I also am very much aware that at the end of the day, in this world, my views really do not matter all that much. They're not going to affect policy. Nobody in Washington cares what Charles Coulomb says. Even if I'm absolutely right, it doesn't matter. They're going to do what they're going to do. And because they rule me, I'm along for their ride. 
So Vietnam, we I can be in our rooms right now, like we are. <laughs> well, that's, that's it. exactly. I'd be in Vienna right now, drinking heavily, but uh, with friends. But I, I got to tell you, uh, is this something? The beginning of, of wisdom is the realization and acceptance of truth, and a big part of the way we have been bamboozled in so many things is by being flattered with the notion that, yeah, you know, what you think really matters. No, it doesn't. Yeah. But you see, once you realize that, it kind of, it's a source of strength, too. Freedom. <laughs> Absolute freedom. Uh, and then, of course, you've got to decide what you're going to do on that basis. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do anything you want. Just remember your masters will punish you if, you, if they don't like what you're doing. <laughs> Anyway, I could go on and on and on and on and on, but yeah. we have promises to keep and miles to go before we sleep. I've yes, got sir. some writing to do before I go to bed. Yes, sir. Well, uh, Charles, appreciate it as always, and we'll do it again another time. Yeah, we, we both got lots of time. I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So, <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen of our wonderful audience, you're not going anywhere no, no, either. Here. Sit tight. We got more coming. <laughs> Get your popcorn ready unless you ran out of it. And in that case, just go down to Target. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll be open. Uh, by the way, I, I will say that normality has definitely returned. I, th- I think I told you this last week. Uh, there's toilet paper in our stores again. <laughs> so Austria is sitting this out fine. <laughs> I love how, like, I don't know if you've seen the photos of uh, uh, Costco having these items will not be returned. Toilet paper was on the list going... Who would have thought? <laughs> Buyer's remorse. You know, now I've got a room full of toilet paper. I'm waiting for the guys to go by down the road. You know, hey, I got two ply. <laughs> That's have you have you seen the uh, what is it, what do they call them? Uh, oh gosh, I think they're uh, foil arms and hog. They're an Irish comedy trio. Yeah. And they've got one now that uh, the the uh, the communion pusher. I'll look. I, you see this this uh, guy going down the street, kid going down the street, goes up to an older fellow in a in a dark suit, and all that. He says, uh, "You have it." He says, "Yeah, the money." <laughs> How much is it? A tenner. A tenner. A tenner. <laughs> a tenner. For one. How do I even know you're a real priest? And he looks uh, down you know, down the road, Psst. and this you see this altar boy come out, you know, just and then pull back into a door. He says, oh, "All right, here's the tenor. <laughs> and he puts the host in his mouth, and then uh, the, the the priest says, "You weren't here, and uh, neither was I." And off he goes. <laughs> it's it's pretty much getting that way now. Yeah. Seriously. All right. Well, listen. God uh, bless you, old man, and God bless our audience. Remember, it's always darkest before it collapses completely. Yeah. Keep your humor out there. Talk to you guys later. <laughs> bye bye.